the question that you have to answer yourself is this your forever home and if it is your forever home where you're going to live here for 20 30 40 years going to retire here then overcapitalizing it makes sense if it's not your forever home make sure that you don't overcapitalize and give yourself a buffer it's very important to understand how the bags work understand where the money is going to come from all of these scenarios needs to play out and how is your investment strategy going to excel from where you are versus where you're going to go Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are going to talk about key life decisions that are going to impact your investment journey or property investment life cycle. We are going to talk about your first property, whether it be your investment property or principal place of residence, the first home buyer's grant, and how to not overcapitalize to ensure that you can continue your property investment life cycle. We'll talk about rent vesting, we'll talk about guarantors, we'll talk about buying a property with a relative or a friend, getting married, having kids, and so all of these fun stuff. And how does that impact your property investment lifecycle? Stay tuned. Thank you very much. Let's invite, drumroll, Cheryl to our podcast. Cheryl, my co-host, Cheryl, how are you today? I am amazing as always, Moss. Uh, love this topic so much because I don't think it gets talked about enough to really go what happens at each stage of your life. So, you know, let's dive into it. Definitely. And it's, it's one of those things that happens to every one of us and we never tend to think about it. It's very reactive. You know, I see people asking these questions all the time that, oh, what happens if you know, I make these X life decisions and, you know, how do I navigate through some of these things? And so we are going to talk about all of these crazy life decisions decisions that happens in everyone's life and how do you navigate them through or what decisions that people need to make when they're talking about or taking some of these life decisions. I was going to say, it can get overwhelming with the amount of information that's out there. And the truth is there's no one size fits all, right? Because when you're starting out, if it's going to be your first property, whether it's an investment or your principal place of residence, we need to, you know, let's start off with that because then then it goes on to when 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 you're married and you're with kids, like that's a different decision that you have around your next steps and all of that. So we're basically almost going to go through a life cycle, and obviously that starts off with buying your very first property, and. The Big thing is around whether you should purchase your an investment property or your principal place of residence. And we've previously in another episode talked about rent vesting, which I'm a big fan of. However, there are situations where you want to take advantage of the first homeowner's grant. So I know Moss, you're across all the different types of grants much more than I am in, in your world. Can you give us some examples of grants that are currently available and doesn't have to be all of them, just examples of some of them? Ultimately, when you talk about the first on grants, you know, there are first on buyers grants on, you know, brand new properties. Then there are, you know, government incentivizing schemes for loans where you can, you know, split the loans or get into no, no LMI loans. Then there are stamp duty concessions available in different states for first home buyers and, and owner occupiers, you know, together at the same time. Naturally, when a person decides to buy a first 
home or even a home to live in, you know, a principal place of residence, even if it's not their first home, that impacts their serviceability. And so from an investment perspective, it always is an interesting question because every time you buy a principal place of residence to live in, there is no income coming against it. The cash outlay is, you know, usually a lot higher and you are paying principal and interest in majority of these circumstances. And so disposable income drops quite significantly, which means that for a lot of people, their investment journey takes a pause or a backseat for quite some time as soon as they go down the route of buying principal place of residence. How do they go about still making that decision, a crucial decision in their life while continuing their journey is a million dollar question, right? Yeah. And let's see, I mean, the, the truth is that looks quite, it's enticing, right? The government says, buy your first property, we'll give you, you know, you, you, you shave off all this stamp duty, you shave off all this needing to, you might, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll subsidize your first 5%, whatever that is. Again, I'm not across the actual different grants. So it looks like you don't have to spend a lot of money up front. So it is enticing. And, and admittedly, when I first bought my property, I took advantage of that at the time. I mean, I lived in the property for, for a few months. I think it was six years to a uh, six months to a year or so, and then ended up renting it out. So, what are your thoughts around that particular strategy? Going, all right, I'm going to take advantage of all of these all of these grants, and I'll live there for a little while, but then I might outgrow it and and rent it out. Ultimately, whenever you're going to decide to buy a principal place of residence, your thinking should be that. You know, this is the first time I'm going to buy a principal place of residence, depending on where you are in your life. You know, you might have one kid, no kid, you know, two kids, three kids. And so the question that you have to answer yourself, is this your forever home? And if it is your forever home where you're going to live here for 20, 30, 40 years, going to retire here, then overcapitalizing it makes sense. But if it's not your forever home, make sure that you don't overcapitalize and give yourself a buffer so that you can keep investing and growing your wealth on the side. I have an interesting story for a client that I just recently met and they bought a property for almost $900,000, you know, moved out from their property in order to renovate it, got the bill for a million dollar of renovation or a quote for a million dollar for renovation, decided that renovation was not the right strategy redesigned the whole thing, wanted to put the house down, build a brand new house. The house was going to cost them $1.6 million. The day before the demo was about to happen, the bank said that, oh, by the way, the GRE doesn't stack up as is value of the house isn't, you know, we can't give you, you know, 3 million valuation on the house where, you know, the houses are selling for 2.4, 2.3, 2.2 million. And so they have stripped down the house already. They've rented to another place. They have already made the plans because, you know, they were so much invested. And now 18 months in, you know, they are going back to, okay, doing a basic renovation, moving in. And so it's important. Like it's, it's a really, really tough decision. You know, you have invested yourself into a decision. You haven't thought this through. Your broker was not on the same page. Didn't realize how the bank is going to react. And you have committed yourself in spending close to about $150,000, not only in you know, all these architectural fees, council fees, et cetera, but also the holding costs because the house is left empty with no tenants in there. So it's important that you think this through, understand that don't overcapitalize, make this. And mind you, like these people are high income earners. They are, you know, right at the top, you know, earning $400,000 a year as a family, right? So, you know, 
living in a shitty old rentals where there is no gas, not proper gas, not proper electricity is a lot of frustration. They're like, you know, why are we living like this? You know, we have a property that we can't live in or we can't renovate. We can actually service a $2 million loan, but, you know, we are in this sort of conundrum where we try to push ourselves way too much in, you know, trying to build something that was, you know, that wasn't thought through properly. And, and that's why it's very important to, when you're making this decision, understand how the bags work, understand, you know, where the money is going to come from. All of these scenarios needs to play out. And how is your investment strategy going to excel from where you are versus where you're going to go? Yeah. And I feel that when we first look at our the property to buy at the very start, a lot of us have this hat of, and we've been sold, right? We want to buy the dream house. And and I'm talking about most most people, they used to, you know, start purchasing properties in their early 20s, but now it's sort of in their sort of 30s and you might purchase it a cup, as a couple or whichever. And we we tend to just look at one property at a time. And so you sort of think, I'm going to get my PPOR, uh, principal place of residence. I'm going to max out my serviceability. I've got this beautiful home, which I might live in for, for a few years. But you raise something previously about serviceability because what tends to happen is that you do max out your serviceability you've put all your capital into it you might have got personal motors grant for for portions but your serviceability you were literally waiting for equity in the property so you're waiting for some capital growth and then you're waiting for your serviceability to kick in so then that impacts on your ability to actually go again and so you literally have to wait and stop. So the flip side is then going, okay, if I don't purchase my, my PPOR, right, and everyone's going to be a little bit different and have different needs, your first property goes, okay, well, if I, I purchase an investment, one of the um, questions that often comes up is, will I still be eligible for the first home owner's grant? Oh, 100%. Look, you, you can protect your first home buyer's grant by using trust structures uh, quite evidently. But in majority of the states, if you are going down the route of uh, investment loans for investment property, your first home owner's grant is usually protected. Now, there are slight caveats to this. Let me rephrase this. So the savings that comes with the stamp duty side of things, the stamp duty concessions, okay, those are definitely protected. But the first home buyer's grant where the states gives you an extra, say, $10,000 for buying a brand new property for the first time, majority of those disappear, but the stamp duty concessions in relation to buying a first home the first time usually stays. Okay? This is predominantly Victoria and a lot of the other states. And so, you, you know, there are, there are pre, you know little tricks of how do you d- define and classify first home buyer's grant as well. There are various different subsets to first home buyers. And so, some of them would still be available, the others would not be available. What you can do is you can protect them completely by buying a property in a trust. And because the trust has a completely legal separate standing, your overall first home buyer's grant basically gets protected. And so, you know, those are some of the key things that you should consider when you're, you know, taking this direction. Yeah. Right. So we've we've addressed our your, your decision, first property, whether it's an investment, whether it's PPOR, we've highlighted a few things to to keep note of so if you purchase as an investment probably doesn't affect your first home home buyers grant if you're going to go down that path have make sure that you have a long-term view of of your property strategy it's really important i know at the time you're so excited you want to buy your first property 
make sure you have a long-term view because what you purchase will impact your ability to purchase more. So another thing, and when we're talking about first properties, again, there is a, a wider acceptance of purchasing with a relative or a friend. So what are your thoughts around around that? Yes, it's it's not usually for the first home. I mean, yes, it is for the first home as well, but it's also, you know, buying these for investment properties. You know, you hear all the time that, you know, I want to buy, a, uh, I want to build my investment pro- property portfolio with a friend or a relative because, you know, we combine the forces together and we can do a lot more. Understand from a bank's perspective, it's very, very important to highlight it from a bank's perspective, how this works. From a bank's perspective, when two people come to the bank together on, you know, buying an investment property, say $400,000 worth of loan, the bank would hold both of you accountable and responsible for that property. And so it's not that, you know, each one of you, uh, you know, gives 200000 takes away $200,000 worth of debt and the total together becomes four hundred. In the bank's eyes, you know, if it's person A and person B, person A owns $400,000, owes $400,000, person B owns for, owes $400,000. If person A disappears, person B pays. If person B disappears, person A pays. And so typically what the bank is doing is bank is almost blocking a serviceability of closer to about $800,000 in total, right? And so a lot of people don't think about this. And they only find out this sort of stuff when they go out to buy a property of their own. And then that's when the bank realized, no, you already have a debt of 400. And, you know, people are like, no, but I was only supposed to, you know, contribute 200,000. And that's not how it typically works. And so while it's a good idea to combine forces, it's only good idea to combine forces where you have done something within your own personal capacity first and the residual serviceability, it's what's left is what you're trying to use now to combine forces, okay? Understand that both of you needs to be in the similar life cycle of property investment journey when you're coming in together, okay? A lot of the times what I see is there is one person who has a lot of assets already and their borrowing capacity is only like, say, $200,000. And then there is one person who can borrow up to, say, $800,000, and they're both combining together to buy a property for 800, you know, thinking that it's divided for 400 and 400. And the next thing you know, this one person, this person A who had bigger serviceability is basically get, is held accountable for the full $800,000 loan. And the other person who has a lot of debts and has a serviceability oh, and has the portfolio already gets look, look sort of free kick because, you know, he's only, you know, putting in $200,000 typically, right? Because he does not, he didn't even have the serviceability in the first place. So it's important to start off at the equitable position and think about this as a long-term gig, not a short-term gig as to how you're going to grow to get the portfolio together. And it would be really, really hard to split the portfolio in the next sort of two or three years, you know, as you're growing this property portfolio. The second thing is use proper structures. You know, don't just go about doing this in your own personal name. A lot of people do these sort of crazy, silly mistakes of doing it in your personal name. At least if you do it in proper structures, you can come out of that structure very quickly and hand it over to someone else, you know, or, you know, depart ways or, you know, sell off your share to someone else, etc. And it provides you that flexibility, you know, without selling the asset, triggering capital gains, et cetera, all of those things too. And so having the right structure in 
in bringing these deals together when you're buying it with a family or a relative is quite important and quite the key. The last one, which is also very, very important, is understanding the tax implications out of things too, as to how this is going to be divided and how this is going to be serviced, right? A key example that I'll share with you is, I know two people went into a deal where they were building houses and selling them, you know, and so they said, okay, we are going to buy our land, build a house, sell. One person had the serviceability, one person had the cash, the person who had the cash gave away the cash to the person who had the serviceability. So he built the house and he sold it in their personal name. And so typically what happens is all the profits come in his own personal profile because it's not a company setup. And so every money, any money that he's giving in his head is basically, you know, happening in his own profile, right? You know, they don't have a business setup. They're not running it through ABN. And so from his perspective, any money that he's giving, from a tax perspective, any money he's giving to someone else is offers disposable income as a gift, right? There is no business expenses per se, or he's returning the loan. And so it, there needs to be a corporate agreement in place or a JV agreement in place that dictates this. And it would potentially need to be done under an ABN because there were GST complications around this. And so we had to almost like, you know, go back and re-register his GST, open his ABN in a back date so that, you know, you can claim and manage some of these things so that he's not up for a big tax bill at the very end. So understanding some of these little nitty gritties around, you know, how do you come together in dealing these things? While it's a great idea, it's important to, you know, bypass some of these, you know, I call them, you know, um, the blow up minds, you know, that have been laid around as you're doing some of these partnerships. And then the two th other things to be aware of, well, actually there's three. One, one is how you're structuring the ownership of that property. You know, there's, there's things called tenants in common where you basically or got joint tenancies. So that, that really depends on whether you've got 50-50, 50-50 ownership or you've got, you know, with 70-30 ownership. So really important that you are across and aware what that impact is and the second thing is obviously, you know, things in your life change when you want to sell, you know, how to navigate that process. And you might go, well, every two years we'll see, you know, we if we hold or we sell, but we, we need to come up with some sort of agreement that says, well, if one person wants and the other one doesn't, how do we deal with that, that situation? And if the other person does want to sell, how do we deal with that situation in terms of going, what's the value of that what's the value of that side and be aware because you are transferring some level of ownership there might there, there may be stamp duty implications and the last one to cover this topic of completely is you know more around guarantors you know people tend to use their parents or their grandparents or money available inheritance etc to provide for their first home buyers as well right and so that's a tricky slippery slope as well when you're talking about guarantees, especially from people who are ready to retire or about to retire and they putting their name up to someone else's asset that, you know, or a loan that they're going to guarantee. Understand that guarantee means that, you know, you are literally, you know, handing away your personal assets or assets under your own personal name against the, the thing that you're guaranteeing, be it the trust or, you know, another purchase. And so it's important to understand the risks around guarantees. I always say to people, instead of providing, you know, raw guarantees, extract the money out and give the money so that, you know, there is a clean cutoff of to how much can you lose rather than providing an unlimited guarantee 
to a loan because, you know, again, you know, yes, he or she is your kid and, you know, you want your kids to succeed, but what you don't want to do is, you know, them to turn around and basically cause you more strife. You know, there is a very key story that I wanted to share here is when you talk about guarantees, understand that when uh, you're providing a guarantee to your kids and the kids are in a relationship and if the relationship breaks, they take away a percentage of whatever, right? Based on their asset breakdown, asset division that takes place within their family. And so if you have provided guarantees into those assets, typically you are exposing a lot from your perspective in that guarantee, right? So it's important to understand, especially if you're using your super while you're at your preservation age or something like that, you know, it's important that you limit that. And so hand over the cash as a gift rather than providing blanket guarantees in a lot of these circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And get financial advice. Yes, of course. Before you do any of these things and get any, any, get all carried away and excited, I think it's really, really important because guarantors generally, guarantors are parents or their later part of their lives. So it's really important that we are aware of how to preserve, preserve their, their wealth as well. Okie dokie. So we've talked about um, buying, buying properties with friends, relatives, next stage of life. It's a good segue to you getting married, right? So getting married changes the dynamics for the good and bad at the same time, right? Good in a way that, you know, it could be that she is working, he or she is working, and, you know, you're, you're getting a boost in the serviceability because now there is two incomes working together. And so your investment portfolio can really grow on steroids. It could be bad as well, typically where, you know, she comes in with a lot of debt or he or she again comes in with a lot of debt. And again, the debt basically is assessed between the two people as well at the same time, similar to the income that is assessed between the two people at the same time. Sometimes it adds, you know, dependent, you know, if you have marriage expenses that are coming through or trailing through your account, the banks would pick them, those up and see that, you know, there is a lot of activity there and they can push your discretionary expenses up, giving you, you know, lower serviceability. So it's important to understand how much do you need to disclose to the bank. I've seen scenarios where people are planning to get married and, you know, they would be like, oh, I'll buy a house under my name and she's going to buy a house under her name before, you know, we put the names together to each other. And so there is all sorts of these stories where you hear all the time where people are trying to maximize their serviceability before they come together and then max and then push it further up, you know, when they come together at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you're when you're married and you're in well, not even when you're when you're married, when you're in a long-term relationship and then legally that's what the the law looks at what do they call de facto partnership de facto partnership that's the word i was looking for yes so you don't necessarily have to get married but you're in a long-term relationship so what the implications are in terms of that particularly if you're purchasing property property together de facto is an interesting one right because typically you know from a law side of things you are almost like a married couple but from banks out of things, you're not because there is nothing in writing in paper that puts A and B together in a single house, right? So it's your word against someone else's. And so it's about how much information do you 
share. Of course, you know, legally you have to, but there's a lot of gray area and a lot of these things. And again, you know, these don't constitute this as financial advisor, tax advisor, financial planning advisor, take this as, take a lot of this work that words that we are saying with a grain of salt or a bag of salt, probably. <laughs> but it's important how much do you attribute your life to the bank as well. You know? So, yeah. And I, I feel this this time in your life, you're, if you're possibly a double income, no children, it really is the best time to be able to leverage leverage your serviceability and grow your portfolios. Like and, and think long think long term. If you're particularly if you're expecting to have children in future, because here's the next part: when you have kids, what does that what does that do to your serviceability? As beautiful as they are, the bank goes, they're expensive little beep, 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 right? 100%. And so serviceability then, from a banking perspective, uh, what have you seen, Moss, in terms of serviceability when, when someone has children and someone doesn't have children? How much does that impact someone? So that's an interesting question, right? Every time a kid comes into the picture, the kid takes away almost hundred dollars to $150,000 worth of your serviceability away from you know, the, them coming into the world. Of course, you know, uh, it's it's a blessing, uh, but it definitely stops you from pushing your ambitions into the investment world. And, you know, two individuals coming in together pushes the serviceability up. The kid coming into the picture basically takes the serviceability away. Every kid who is dependent takes the serviceability serviceability away typically because your discretionary expenses in the bank's eyes goes up quite significantly and so they use that discretionary expenses to basically pull down your serviceability um, as the kid grows older and older they're going to school etc all of those things and so it's important to understand you know uh, especially like before all the way before going to mat leave uh, you have opportunities to acquire properties and you should, if you have the serviceability available, you should use that if you have that decision point in your life because you know that that decision point would disappear and you would not get that opportunity. Of course, take caution. Don't use all your buffers before, because, you know, you want to ensure that, you know, you're giving a beautiful life to the kid as well. And so don't just use everything that you have. And then the next thing you know that the kids come into the world and, you know, you've invested everything and you're, paper rich but not cash rich but it's important to balance that out with making the right investment decisions as well yeah and and just it's just part of the planning again you know if you go back to when you become a couple and you want to plan ahead if someone is going to be out of work for a long period of time you want to be able to have some level of additional income that gives you choices right if if you're able to plan it out and, and, and put yourself in a position where you've got enough income that supplements your partner's wage and allows them either the flexibility of staying home for longer or whichever that's just that's that's part of the that your property strategy so again important to be able to be thinking long term goals come up with a strategy because the worst thing is to you know you have kids and you have to make that decision of you know, and and if you really want to stay home, I'm not. I'm talking about mum or dad. Doesn't matter, right? It's like, but you feel that you don't have enough of the income, and then you've got to put them in childcare. But if you earn too much, then you don't get the childcare subsidy. It's a really yucky place to 
be in to make those sorts of decisions. You know, so if you can already plan ahead and, and have that that additional income coming through, it's going to just make life easier for you. If you're past that, you've got kids, doesn't mean it's the end of the world. We're just saying, you know, at different parts of your life, just make sure you've got you you've got these options available for you. Yes. And like having kids doesn't mean that you can't invest, right? You know, that's not the message that we are giving. It's just that, you know, plan accordingly so that you can make better decisions and use that to your advantage. You can maximize your your borrowing, your serviceability and make better decisions or plan better decisions up front, being a bit more proactive around some of these things. Absolutely. And and the purpose of us sharing this is like, you know, we've been through we've been through this, we've seen people go through it and you you, you it, it you can't help but go. If I'd done it again, I would have done it with with the with the knowledge that I have. I might have done it differently, or the same, or whatever that might be. So it's really about depending on where you are in your life, being able to just take these into account. Thank you for listening to the first episode for key life decisions that are going to impact your serviceability, your property investment life cycle, or property investment decisions. Now there is part two to this, which is information packed around not just marriage and having kids, but also changing jobs. You know, what does, it, does that mean if you are changing from one industry to another or you are going from POID income earner to an ABN income earner or a sole trader to running a business? How does that impact your property investment journey? We're also going to talk about getting cars, getting unsecured personal loans, putting kids through private school, student loans, study loans, moving overseas, downsizing, all of this fun stuff. And how do you navigate through all of these things while managing and growing your property investment life cycle or property investment strategy? Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to us today.